Hello? Yeah, can't hear shit. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, we have a new team and we can actually hear it worse than the old one. <laughs> it's a wicked theme. <laughs> I couldn't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever can hear the theme song except Kari. Everything will be fixed on the post. <laughs> Everything will be fixed on the post. That is kind of the running theme of the podcast. Everything yeah. will be fixed on the post. Since you can't get any talent that uh, hosts you, can fix everything, <laughs> fortunately, in the post. <laughs> and gee, man, you, and you were saying all those nice things just the last episode. Yeah, I'm a weekly bastard. <laughs> yeah, we apparently have moved past the, you know, the cel- celebratory episode. <laughs> we are nice to each other. <laughs> nice words section has ended and it's back to business. <laughs> it's back to the regular program. <laughs> Speaking of regular pro- program, we are continuing with the James Bond movies. And yeah. meeting the Roger Moore era. Yeah, in a matter of minutes, the entire photosphere will cease to exist as soon as we start talking. So kind of like the Stromberg of podcasting coming right up. Yeah, well, at least in the sense that, like Stromberg's base, also this podcast has tanked and sunk pretty damn low. Remember what we talked in the last celebratory episode? We need to take a little bit more pride of our product. Were we supposed to not be as critical and continuously hit ourselves with a bat? (laughs) Whatever, we'll go with that. I am Corri. I'm media assistant, so I know what I'm talking about more than you. And he's Henrik, he's my co-host. We have a guest, his name is Tom. Hello. Nice to have you with us once again. Thank you for returning this podcast. Thank you for having me once more. Thank you very much. Very nice. We will embrace those thanks coming from your direction, Tom, because I'm certain that once we are kind of closing in on this Bond marathon of ours... Those will be very few and far between. Guys, like, let's take a little bit of a look of what movies we have skipped in this franchise. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, the classics. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I knew that, know that you, Gary, you most definitely wanted to Diamonds Are Forever, but, you know, unfortunately, I, I had to pu- stop you there and demand and insist that we kind of keep it only on two bonds per actor. We can't quite do that. To understand where we are now, I think it's good to look at what has happened prior. So, basically, the official Eon Productions Bond series starts with Doctor No from 1962 with this unknown, sexy Sean Connery with this suave Englishman's Scottish-ish style. Yay! <laughs> Followed by From Russia with Love, which we did cover. Yeah. From 1963. Picking some real enthusiasm from Tom. Yes. Followed by Goldfinger. <laughs> from 1964. So, Goldfinger started the Bond Mania. I mean, it was basically the biggest thing on the planet, which was continued by Thunderball. From 1965. Also known as Never Say Never again. Yeah, that's the original. <laughs> that, that, that's the original and Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt is the cheap knockoff remake. 
the the film that has an incredible amount of underwater sequences, which was the fancy thing at the time. And from that description, I believe everybody knows which movie that is. So we continue on to You Only Live Twice from 1967. Yay! Directed by <laughs> tonight's film's director, Louis Gilbert, his first work in the Bondosphere, followed by On Her Majesty's Secret Service from 1969, directed by Peter Hunt. Boo! <laughs> yeah, boo! The, the best film, the uh, best Bond film ever Boo. put on screen. Boo! <laughs> followed by Diamonds Are Forever from 1971, in the infamous return of Sean Connery for one last outing, kind of, in the Eon Productions series. Anyway, later on he decided that it would be a good idea to do another Thunderbolt, just to give a middle finger for Albert R. Broccoli, the producer of Eon Productions. And uh, from Diamonds Are Forever, his astronomically high paycheck for Sean Connery, it was one million dollars at the time, we move on to Live and Let Die... From 1973, of course, the title song is sung by Paul McCartney and Wings. This is kind of the black exploitation period film. A lot of fun, a lot of uh, slapstick stuff, but a really funny movie. Well, it's something I wouldn't say it's fun or good or entertaining or I thought it exciting was. or suspenseful or anything like that, but it's something. And unlike most people, I actually do like Sheriff J.W. Pepper, the local sheriff that is trying to stop the madness with the boats in the action Get sequence. Get the fuck out! <laughs> like, you're, you're officially off your own podcast but with that statement. God damn it, it's a funny character. It's, it's, it's not funny, <laughs> it's obnoxious. It's, it's one of the kind of a staple things that it's most wrong with Roger Moore's Bond films. Not at all. That's the high point of the film. In it's, its own universe. In its own universe, where there only exist the two Bond films where that character appears. Then we continue to 1974. It was the year when they wanted to punch out the next Bond film extremely quickly out after the last one, because it was a success. And it's the man with the golden gun from 1974. Yay! Who will not get it done? And he dies, everyone! And then we take a three-year period break because of legal hassles. Guy Hamilton was actually supposed to direct God Help Us, also this tonight's movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. Fortunately, though, because there were so many problems... Because of his interest in directing Superman in 1978, which he didn't do, which he didn't get to do after all, he left this project. And good, because I think he was already kind of slacking off. He had done Goldfinger, of course, but all the other films in the franchise that he did, I wasn't a big fan of. So those were Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Golden Gun. So we turn on back to Louis Gilbert. And Henrik, who the hell is Louis Gilbert? Louis Gilbert is a director at time and once well known for putting out well repeated entries in the Bond franchise, but also the original version of Alfie, which yep. is usually quite highly regarded kind of a romantic 
comedy drama about very born to level of ladies man without the spy adventures and all the gadgets. He did direct Ferry to Hong Kong in 1959 which stars our star of the night Kurt Jurgens and also did uh, Friends from 1971. This film is kind of a growing up story I think which stars uh, Sean Burry. And Sean Burry in the film is one of those HMS guys in the submarine. So very small role. We'll get to that back. And there was a sequel to this in 1974 called Paul and Michelle. And we got to the point where we are for the second time going to look at more, much more, Roger Moore. As Once James again, Bond this time. God, God damn it, haven't we touched upon the guy already? We have. Let's touch some more. <laughs> Let's talk more about I, more. I, I, I don't know. I don't, Roger I don't, Moore. I don't, Moore. As James Bond. Roger Moore. I, I, I don't more. know if there, if there is enough more in Roger Moore for all this touching from your side, Curry. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Okay. <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> He is known for playing the same TV series in the 60s and also known for James Bond. Anything else? Everybody's sleeping today. Well known for James Bond and the, the, the Saint. That's pretty much Roger Moore. Much more. Well, there was the Saint. I st- <laughs> God damn it. And there was also James Bond. <laughs> and Saint. And Cannonball Run. Don't forget that one. Yeah. And which and the two sequels, which also have cameos from from more. Much more. Yeah. And the Wild Geese, the mercenary fil- flick, which also had Roger Moore. Roger Moore. Yeah. More. <laughs> God damn it. A little bit of professionalism is all I'm asking for <laughs> myself. Um, Barbara Bach, known for The Spy Who Loved Me and uh, Caveman. Odyssey, a TV series, I guess, is the biggest role that she has had. Maybe Screamers? Uh, I don't know. Can we go back to back and, and talk about Barbara Bach? We're going back to the subject of Bach. Yeah. Are we? No, we're not. We just started. This is a very confusing podcast. <laughs> I, I, I somehow get the feeling that the last episode we did was the celebratory 50th. <laughs> we, we, we are still a bit drunk from that one. <laughs> but I guess outside of Bond, the most notable thing is Odyssey at the TV series for her. She stopped acting in 1986, reason unknown. And uh, they had a lot of difficulty finding Anya's actor for this film. But then there was Danny Risner from UA, uh, executive, and uh, came to talk with the Bond team. And he was friends with Barbara Barr. And he wondered if, if they'd have a small, tiny, weeny role for her in the film. But in fact, they were running out of time. They did a screen test for her and thought she was great for the main role. So it happened. Just four days before shooting, they found her. If you're completely obnoxious James Bond buff, you may also want to check out Blah Humanoid, 
or however you pronounce it. A really bad sci-fi film and also the war action adventure film Force 10 from Navarone. Which both have the interesting aspect in it that it's Barbara Bach once again re-teaming with Richard Keel, who we see here as Jaws. Is that then the film where Jaws kind of reprises, uh, or <laughs> Richard Keel reprises his role as Jaws? Because I heard there is this this mysterious film where he kind of does the exact same thing outside of Bond. No, that would be Inspector Gadget, which is really kind of a lackluster film adaptation of a lackluster cartoon show. It came in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like really close to that, I would say something like 99 or exactly 2000 when the Inspector Gadget film live action came out. And there Richard Keel, his character doesn't even have a name in the film. If I remember correctly, he's just a famous guy who has silver teeth. Tom, we noticed with you that there were some weird comments that Barbara Bach, or not so weird really, some weird comments from the People magazine in 1983 that she had given. She said that she might be getting back into the movies at that point, and um, she and Ringo were going to play a gay married couple in NBC Ministries, Princess Daisy, doing November, and says that that is better than Bond, because, quote, Bond is a chauvinistic pig who uses girls to shield him against bullets, unquote. Well, I have two things to say. Number one, happy birthday, Ringo Starr. It's his birthday today. Um, yeah, while yeah. we are recording, yeah. And, and, uh, this was not planned in, in any level, but guys, it's been 42 years exactly since the premiere of The Spy Who Loved Me today. Wow. Well, that's really good planning from your end, Curry. I didn't do anything. No, I mean, no, don't, don't let the listener base get the wind of that. It's just, you know, st- make the statement that this was all planned. Well, it doesn't matter anyway, because... It, it, yeah, it, it doesn't matter because Tom is here with us, and he actually hears how we are completely faking our professionalism. This movie had, we had 365 different opportunities during the year to record this, but we recorded on this day, and there must be a hidden meaning in this, except not. So I'll get to my second point, and you guys can think about the hidden meaning whilst I (laughs) say my second. Second of all, she's talking nonsense, because he only mocked her driving skills in the Bond, and you and you really have to go by the um, standards of the 1970s. So, of course, it's going to have a little dash and a sprinkle of sexism in the film. Well, it's not something that should be accepted outright, and there's way more than just the comment on women drivers. Well, she knew what, what she was signing up for, I guess. Well, sure, well... Mo- most likely, yeah, she did know what she signed up for, but... Still, you know, even if you know what you are getting with these Bond films, it doesn't change the fact that you get what you get with these Bond films. Uh, Moreover, when she signed for the project, at least if you believe People magazine, which you can probably take with a grain of salt, it said that Roger Moore wasn't completely satisfied with this decision to go with Barbara Bach because he was expecting for somebody else, whoever it was. And then... Kind of Barbara Bach what seemed to be not too impressed 
with the character of James Bond at least when she made those comments in 1983 or thereabouts. So interesting. She has been in Italian and French productions and this is her first English film. Maybe we will get more to her actual performance later on, but uh, Kurt Jürgens. Mm. Roger Moore said of Jürgens that he is a magnificent character and a nice man. And he has this very kind of special speaking voice. I think it has a lot of command in it. It's kind of his trademark and also just the physical presence. I think this is a very, very powerful presence on screen. And his hair, man. Yeah, that hair. That amazing hair. And uh, he spoke about five different languages and could act in any of them. Not too bad. Henrik, what do you know about Kurt Jürgens? Unfortunately, embarrassingly little. I somehow, I've only catched from him the enemy below and the longest day. And otherwise... I really don't remember running into his filmography. Yeah, The Longest Days, once again, one of those films that kind of is an explosion of stars. Also, Sean Connery is in that film. Well, basically, all the stars of that time period are in, in the film. Right. And then, indeed, we have Richard Keel. Perhaps Jaws was kind of borrowed as a name from the film Jaws, because we're going to talk about the Steven Spielberg connection of this film as well, but... Yeah, when he first heard of the character's description, he was kind of thinking that this is some kind of a joke. Guy with the chromium teeth walking around and biting people. And one day, Gilbert realized that uh, he had a terrible pain in his neck. That was only because he realized that he had been looking up at Richard Gill all day long. So this is a really tall guy, over two, two meters tall. Also a guy who unfortunately never was able to escape his legacy as a Bond villain in two of the films. Mm. Well, uh, uh, yeah, after his appearance as Jaws, he was kind of forever branded as Jaws. That's kind of understandable with your with your height and your body and everything. And your teeth. Like your physical presence and your teeth. Yes, his character had a little bite to it. Didn't it? <laughs> yeah. A bite that could last like 35 seconds at a time, according to Roger Moore. He could only keep them on around 35 seconds, if we are to believe this old time, this uh, good old jokester, Roger. But yeah, it was something like that. (laughs) Roger Moore. They were extremely uncomfortable to wear. Much more. Um, God damn it. Caroline Munro is one of the baddies in this film was a model and Cubit Broccoli, the producer, saw her somewhere in where, where she was posing on some pages and she looked like a very strong character and she asked Monroe to be sent to his office immediately. Then we of course have the hotel receptionist Valerie Leon. Like, uh, she didn't want to be a baddie, she didn't want to be killed off, but she wanted to be in the film and she got her wish. I don't know if they were planning to give her the Caroline Monroe role, but... Uh, Anything to add, or should I shut up? Or do you prefer much more Roger Moore? <laughs> <laughs> All right. A little bit more about Gilbert. The director wanted to rectify what had been done in the, in his opinion, wrong with Moore's Bond before. Quite rightly so. Where he'd play the character too close to Connery, slapping and torturing girls, in, especially in The Man with the Golden Gun. And instead, Gilbert kind of went 
back to the books, at least in his own words. That's kind of a weird way to put it, but but yeah, in the pages you find this very English, very smooth and guy who has a good sense of humor. And that's what he was focusing on. So no arm wrestling or twisting in this one. And they also decided to remove sexism once and for all. Okay, no, they didn't really. Well, they did tone it down, in my opinions, a bit from the books. Oh, from the books, yeah, maybe. Uh, also, kind of a same way, like, well, some of the more racist elements of Bond's behavior also kind of swept under the rug and cut out in the film presentations. Yeah, but this is still, like, pretty, pretty bad. It is pretty heinous and pretty cringeworthy, especially when looked on today. Kind of surprising, still. You think that you would be in theater and uh, a lot of people, even from the male side, would be, like, cringing and feeling uncomfortable with some of this stuff. Like, well, come on, it's not really funny. Well, like, like Tom has pointed out, in this one and in one of the previous episodes where I was crying about the subject matter, Tom is right. These are films of, of their era. And back in those days, people weren't as sensitive about these things as we are today. People want us walk. There are a lot of films from those times, though, that have nothing of this sort. So I think James Bond is very well known for, like, kind of using it a lot in its jokes. James Bond did use it so much in its jokes and also so much in the way how the films overall presented women that it kind of became once again one of the stables or one of the stamps that you hit the Bond franchise with it to a point where these days Bond films no longer even can escape that legacy of female treatment. Yeah, it's been parodied so much and... One of the carrying forces of this film is the cinematographer Claude Renoir. Yeah, the cinematographer was losing his eyesight kind of during this film, but he was able to finish this film and he did like a couple of others after this, but then he had to quit. For example, during the tanker scenes in the 007 stage, there was Stanley Kubrick paying a visit to the set secretly and he came to give some lighting advice. And uh, Claude Renoir, he was a French cinematographer, the son of Pierre Renoir, also an actor. And it's basically like an artist family. And he had worked prior with Louis Gilbert in Paul and Michel, at least, from 1974. Renoir also worked on The French Connection 2, and a whole stock of French productions that are unfamiliar to me. Did you dive into Claude Renoir, Henrik or Tom? I have liked quite a lot of some of his works, like Cleopatra and The Great Illusion, and most definitely Barbarella, Queen of the Galaxy. In my view, the cinematography is like a huge improvement from the previous Bond films. Like, you can really notice it, that, that there's, there has been some effort made to here to create beautiful shots. There's a huge difference in quality. Yeah, there's a huge difference in budget as well. I guess that always helps. Like, yeah, true. Golden Gun was 7 million and this is 14 million. Despite the fact that Golden Gun wasn't even 
like very successful. I mean, it was hugely successful, but compared to the previous Bond outings, for example, with Connery, I mean, it was starting to get to be a little bit of a letdown at this point. And they had to do something about it. They were smart. They realized that they need to come back big and better than ever. When this film was produced, Harry Saltzman was now out, the other producer. He was so much in debt for different banks that he had to shell his share of James Bond for 20 million to copy Broccoli and effectively Broccoli became the de facto owner of the franchise and Eon Productions. I kind of have a newsflash. Brian Marshall, who played the Commander Talbot in The Spy Who Loved Me, has died. Mm. Well, it's basically like a morgue. If you look at the list of factors, a lot of people have died, indeed. <laughs> and, and other nice comments. <laughs> we, we are looking at the graveyard here, guys. Yeah. Well, music is by Marvin Hamlish, because John Barry wasn't available for this one. I'm, I'm sure he would have been available happily, because Harry Saltzman was now out of, out of the picture. Famously, John Barry and Harry Saltzman didn't get along too well after Diamonds Are Forever because John Barry had uh, scored and orchestrated uh, the Diamonds Are Forever, the song with Charlie Bassey. And because the lyrics had, you know, kind of secondary double meanings going on, and Harry Saltzman thought that, oh, this is disgusting, we can't, we can't use this, Jesus Christ. And John Barry was like, fuck off, you don't know anything. And, and uh, that was the moment, that the reason why... He didn't return to score Live and Let Die. Then he did come back for Golden Gun for some reason. And now, for tax reasons, he was unable to do this one. There's kind of a disco classical music vibe going on here. And then he did this Bond 77 tune, which is basically kind of a disco rendition of the Bond theme that we see in the opening, the pre credit sequence. There's also two pieces of popular mu- music from Maurice... Jar, uh, the Dr. Shivako theme plays on Anya's music box, and the theme of Lawrence of Arabia plays during the desert sequence when Bond and Anya leave their broken van. Did you guys pick up those? I know that Henrik knows uh, Shivako. I did not, no. I do know the film, but I also didn't pick up the tune. Your huge failure now in episode 51. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I managed to pull off, you know, for 50 episodes, but now, now that the celebration at the Hallmark has been reached, it's just a, it's only a downhill for me. Huh. You can join the others in the graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the production designer here is Ken Adam. He's back once again. Adam wanted to kind of deviate from his linear set design from previous films and brought in more curvature in this one. You can see it in the design of Atlantis, for example. Very curvaturian move right there. I also like his Gogol's office in the pre-credits. And this one is drawing inspiration from Sergei Eisenstein's Russian crypt-like set, apparently. And Henrik has seen a couple of Sergei Eisenstein films. If memory serves. I I have seen few of his more well-known works. I can't say I'm a, I'm actually a professor on, on the subject matter, though. But mm. for, for example, Potemkin still, still merits an extremely high 
Recommendation. Yeah. Piotemkin. I can't say it like a native. Piotemkin. It's really hard. In this podcast. What's next? I don't know. I'm I'm not the leader anymore. Henrik, take over. Well, in that case, I think I will I will lead us in the treacherous waters of scene by scene. Oh mm. no, that's early. Well, you are the madman who passed the reins to me, so you can only blame yourself. This is the one moment where you can salvage the situation and buy this episode some more minutes into the meter. Well, since you have already mentioned the scene by scene. It's my duty to say, if you insist, more. we go from there. Roger Moore. Much Please. more. <laughs> Way more. Coming up. The Roger Moore joke isn't that funny, guys. <laughs> it is hilarious. <laughs> it is something that we will eventually hear from our listeners. Once again, when we collect the listener feedback for the 100th episode, <laughs> there will be like 200 remarks how... The Roger Moore joke was never funny and we completely overused it. <clears throat> we will <laughs> We will hear from them much more. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so the <laughs> we are really not professional today. <laughs> This is the second filmed gun barrel of Roger Moore. In Live and Let Die and the Man with the Golden Gun, they use the first version of the Roger Moore gun barrel, and uh, in that one it's a little bit crappy actually, because he shoots to his left side, (laughs) and then he corrects his uh, hands to point into the middle of the screen. So it's a little bit of awkward um, sequence. So for, for this one they have reshot it, and they used this version until the last Roger Moore Bond film. And I think they had a new composer for the theme as well. Marvin Hamlish is doing the soundtrack. And the film opens to the submarine. Casual submarine tit posters. 500 feet. In 500 feet. Uh, the young handsome subcrewman here who comes to sit by the coffee table is... His character name seems to be Eddie G. Fraser. He's played by Sean Berry. And uh, as mentioned, he is in the two Lewis Gilbert films, Friends and Paul and Michelle. And this film is his last film. Was probably unable to find any other job then. Alarm goes off and stuff. Bloody hell. The opening of this one... is very cinematic. It's very cinematic, but to me it was also kind of weird. In the sense how these openings usually play out in Bond films, where you actually see the opening disaster happening. Like, for example, in For Your Eyes Only, even though you don't completely get the whole picture, you still see, you know, the mine hitting the the ship and the ship sinking and all the death that happens. In here, when you contrast that to what happens here, you simply see the alarm going off and then this kind of a cliffhanger note. Oh my god. And you realize they are looking at something very spectacular and terrifying and big, but it just completely cuts off and then it cuts off to the headquarters where there is information is passed on on what happens and you almost get it, get it but then it cuts to Moscow. Yeah, sorry. I have a lot, a lot of things to say before we go to Moscow. More. Because much more. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, 
<laughs> God damn it. <clears throat> so when I was watching this periscope scene where he says, oh my God, I felt like what is he actually seeing when he's checking the periscope? He's seeing the ship opening wide, right? But can you even make sense of it when you're looking at it at that moment? Well, but he was perfectly able. I think I know and, what he was seeing. I think he was already. I think the submarine was already in the ship, and he was just seeing sailors surrounding him with guns. But okay, maybe. But in the previous shot, it's still on the open sea. Well, Bond never really follows a logical pattern, so. No. Oh well, we'll go with that. But okay, it goes to the headquarters, and Henry and Tom, do you recognize who is taking the phone call? Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Hilly. Hilly, you old devil. <laughs> Welcome back. Sir Hillary Bray. In his new position. So my theory here is that since James Bond previously, before his several plastic surgeries, previously took the fake role of Sir Hillary Bray, he ruined the reputation of Bray, so he had to change his life and start a new career somewhere else with another name. And he's a man of many talents, is, is, is Hilly. Hilly! <laughs> and when we get further in the film, we will notice how he watches Bond with so much scorn in the in Contempt. That scene. Yeah, contempt. This is the guy who ruined my career. Okay, but we're in Moscow, Henrik. So, what about Moscow? Well, nothing more to add to the previous point. But since we now are in Moscow, we also see the... I can't believe they actually went with this, but Agent Triple X, mm? who is the female operative. I like the fake fake out that they do here. Yeah, like. Th- that, that is good. That is good. And I also like the twist in, in the sense that now they actually... This is kind of one of the few Bond films where... They actually present to you a female operative who is also capable in some capacity. And his boyfriend does look like George Lazenby. And many people have been confused at this moment that is this James Bond or who is this guy? It's a very clever scene because it kind of exposes my own sexism because I I just never would (laughs) have thought that a spy could be female. But I'm not alone in being fooled. It was a very clever scene. It was, it was. It, it, it is one of the more clever scenes in the film. And we get to M's office and right from this shot you can see how well they have positioned the frame. Like, M is completely in, you know, that golden cut point where he should ideally, I guess, be. And I like how, how many of these shots throughout the film are taking a little bit from afar and then they get gradually closer. But, oh, James, I cannot find the words. Let me try and enlarge your vocabulary. Tell him to pull out. Immediately. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one. That was a good one. But he's not actually in. I I, I guess we should actually analyze Bond's height here in in order to properly estimate is he in or is he out. He's out. But he's he's going out. No, he's Just a few minutes later, but... Okay. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, <laughs> am I the only one who hated the goddamn telegram watch that Bond has? 
and has been wondering exactly how much metal slip there is inside of that thing. And you know, uh, Henrik, when we were kids, you know, you had all these these plastic things everywhere. You would have it in toilet where you would, you know, print your name on it so you would identify your own towel. Why? Things like that. I don't know, maybe it was some kind of a Scandinavian or Nordic Nordic thing. We had that. I never ha- I I didn't. I didn't. It, it but it, it that may be because I was poor and still am. But I remember that even we had like this this machine that does this kind of slips or strips or whatever you and then you can with adhesive you can put them anywhere for some purpose. But yeah, you have to wonder how much of that stuff fits into that clock. Can't be too much. You have to refill it like all the time. You can have precisely one message printed out and then you are empty. Yeah. Okay. And at this point, we are at the ski chase. And uh, once again, this is filmed by the same guy who was doing the skiing sequence filming for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I like the close-up on more when he's smiling while skiing. <laughs> it's priceless. Like, here, I ski in front of a back projection. I, on the other hand, am not the biggest fan of the opening ski chase scene. I kind of have a problem with, with the goddamn music. And also some of the goofy antics that Bond pulls off. Well, once again, you're wrong. It's one of the best music in the series. It's one of the best openings in the series. And it's very... And that says a lot about the series. Or it says a lot more about you as a critic. As a critic, it says about me that I'm a critic who follows a rational logic and doesn't give in to the temptation of falling into feelings and nice things. Oh, now you're the no feelings guy. I see. Whenever it's convenient. The tables have turned, Kari. No, they haven't. You just don't know a good scene when you see it. Especially the yellow-red costume that, or the suit that Bond is having. It's extremely wonderful. By the way, do we know? Oh wait, do we know why Bond was chased in the first place by the Russian agents? I do not know. Yeah, Kari has a theory. Except, uh, except yeah. I have a theory. Yeah, I have a theory that uh, they need to kill Bond because they want to steal his Austrian lighter. That's the best I can come up with. Because he bought the lighter in Burn Garden and they want it for themselves. My the- theory about the opening is that they were trying to kill Bond simply out of the necessity that. There had to be some kind of a forced and hand-fisted way to get a animosity between Bond and uh, Agent Triple X. Do you hear the Soviet commander describe the um, barber as Triple A, or did I just hear Triple X? Yeah, it's it, Triple it, X. It is Triple X or XXX. They both mean the same goddamn thing, which is hardcore porn. And that really awful Wind Diesel movie franchise. Yeah. At 7-Eleven, there are what looks like like warning signs for the approaching cliff, I guess. And the ski almost rips the Union Jack to pieces during the stunt. So the stunt is done by a dude whose name I have lost once, once again. But this dude... He was shit. <laughs> what? He was shit. Okay. No, no these stuntmen. <laughs> the Willy Wagner was the one who did the <laughs> ski shooting. Yeah. And Rick Sylvester did the ski jump. Yeah, him. And it, shit. And it was a cliff in Mount Asgard in Canada. 
He got uh, half a million dollars for doing that. The most expensive single movie stunt at the time. That was in uh, July 76, I believe. There was a three-week window in which you could do the stunt. Because otherwise, there would be way too much snow and they could not shoot the scene. So they came there. They couldn't shoot it right away because there was a lot of wind, a lot of snow in the air. You couldn't do it. And like after a few days, Copy Broccoli contacted this guy and he thought that he's not going to even go go with it. And he told him so. Rick Sylvester said, no, Copy, I'm just waiting for the wind to clear. And finally, the wind cleared out. It was the perfect condition to shoot the scene. He did it. There was a helicopter with three or four cameras, but each camera in that helicopter lost Rick Sylvester when he did the jump. But there was one camera from the side that managed to follow Rick Sylvester all the way through. So they had to go with that one. But I guess in the end that kind of makes the scene more powerful because you're looking at only one camera, perhaps. And then the Union Jack comes out and it almost uh, destroyed the parachute which would have killed Rick Sylvester. Luckily, it just missed the parachute. But I was actually quite following Tom's logic and be interested to hear more about the stuntman being shit. Yeah. Yes, well, he fucked up the jump and he got tangled in his own parachute. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. (laughs) Where did you hear that? I read it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, okay, he's great. Um, I'm... (laughs) Scriptwriter Christopher Wood came up with the Union Jack. It got a huge applause in the audience when it was shown. Oh, and yeah, even though in the advertisement, whatever it was advertising, it was kind of making the claim that he had done the jump before from Mount Asgard, but he hadn't. But then he kind of, he got the call from the producers and he said that he had never done it, but he had the idea how to do it and he was able to do it. Pretty crazy. From which we get to title sequence. Uh, the first title sequence where Bond is in a major role. Well, we have seen Bond in On Her Majesty's Secret Service title sequence, but I'm not sure if George Lazenby was giving that silhouette of himself. But anyway, here Roger Moore is in the title sequence. Jumping like a goddamn bunny rabbit. Mm. Morris Binder is the artist uh, of the title sequences. He's one of the most world-famous title sequences creator. He was always able to... Well, the thing is, he would always ultimately deliver. He would always be delivering at the last freaking moment, these title sequences. It would get so crazy that they would sometimes put on the titles the night before the premiere of the film. And the standard joke was that if they would not be ready for the premiere, they would stop the film after the pre-credits and Roger Moore would go read the credits in front of the theater screen. (laughs) (laughs) That some believed he was simply late with them so that no one could change these titles. Again, it would have been very interesting t- title credit scene to be seen to have Roger Moore simply read out the credits. <laughs> like, even if they now with Roger Moore films, I feel that these opening titles are kind of taking the step into the di- right direction when it comes to the title score and the visuals, I still would say that these ain't the best that the franchise has. The real moments of of cleverness to be have, for example, in these title visuals, 
I most like the moment where there is the silhouette of five or six girls marching in this Russian style and then more stepping in front of them and the girls simply falling down, kind of like dead. And I, I like that one extremely yeah. a lot, but overall I would say that there still comes a moment in the franchise where these title credits get even more kind of crazier and visually more clever. And the songs also start to have more punch to them. I have to agree with the general audience that this is one of the best title music that there is in the series. Mm. One of my favorites, yeah. At least it is the most self-celebratory. Yes. The thing is, that it's funny that uh, this film is kind of self-awareishly very much willing to do the best Bond film ever. You can hear it in the title song and uh, in the advertisements and all that. But actually, they are quite right that this is one of the best ones, I think, out there. I agree. Okay. Well, it kind of depends how many you are going to count into the category of the one of the best ones. Like, where, where you put it? Five films? Six top, films? Top five. Top five, probably. <laughs> Nobody does it better than Marvin Hamlish. Yeah, he went kind of back to classical music. Uh, that's that's how it it starts with this nice piano, this song. I like also the coloring in this title sequence. It starts with clear green, then it goes to clear blue. And I like the effect when there's this, there's this uh, yellow moon in the background and Bond is hugging some girl. And also when, they, when the pistol is in the forefront and then it goes away and it exposes Roger Moore behind it. And it, then it also goes to red color while... Roger Moore pushes the soldiers away. I think it's a pretty great title sequence. Not sure if that's the case, but it feels like um, maybe the rush, that the, the fact that Morris Binder was working on a tight schedule, like he always was, I think it might show in a lot of these title sequences, because when this title sequence begins, you see Bond uh, jumping and then going off the frame behind some woman's hands, I believe. And we can see that uh, he teleports away when he's behind the hand. Like these small little mistakes, I think, which could have been avoided. Then again, analog times, so everything was way harder. And in this title sequence, you definitely have a lot of visible nudity. Not so much silhouette all the time. Goggle and Triple X. There's a Lenin portrait in the background. We get Yes, the... yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, as one has in the Soviet Union. Then we got the British ship... Sir Hilary Bray is back once again with the fake name Captain Benson. So there he is giving the eye for Bond. Robert Brown. This is a very interesting group of people, actually. There's George Baker, who played Sir Hilary Bray in Her Majesty's Secret Service and Captain Benson here. Then we have Robert Brown playing uh, Emeril Hargreaves. And this is an interesting question because later on he plays M, of course. Here he is, Hargreaves. It's an interesting question to ask. Do you mm. do you think that Emerald Hargreaves was promoted to M when he started playing M in Octopussy onwards up to License to Kill? It would be funny to think so. We can only answer that question if we learn um, how Bernard Lee worked. Did he die or did he just retire? Or Well, in real life he did die. Then there was no M in 1981 for, for your, your Eyes Only, and then there was M again in the form of Robert Brown in Octopus in 1983. And there's Jeffrey Keane, once again playing the whatever, the 
what's his title? Some defense motherfucker. And uh, the tracing, <laughs> the tracing came from Cairo in a diplomatic bag. Somebody in Cairo wants to sell the blueprints of the tracking system. Hence, he sent the proof of the tracked route. But I'm kind of curious how they can authenticate the tracked course that they have received. I guess that they see part of the course or all of it, and that's good enough that they know roughly where the ship was, you know. And this then means that the British lost their ability to track the submarine once Stromberg took over it, I guess. Mm. And the little bit of itsy-bitsy problem is that the submarine has 16 Polaris missiles aboard, so they have to get it back. And quickly. And they get so desperate that they want to actually do some detente indeed with the Russians. We get to Stromberg's office in Atlantis. Dr. Beckman and Professor Markovitz have created, developed this tracking system, which is very advanced, much more. And Sony is happy to be part <laughs> of the Sony is happy to be part of the <laughs> murder apparatus. Well, you know, they just want to get wherever they can sponsor themselves, right? Could be the baddies monitor where you can kill people with the snap of a button, like blowing up helicopters. Stromberg's a real asshole. Yeah, that kind of felt unnecessary. He already knew who was. I, I don't know. He he. They they were demanding quite a lot of money. No, well, Stromberg promised to pay them the money. Yep, he did. He did. But it was it was quite a large sum. Like Stromberg only cut unnecessary losses at that point. He saved money quite a lot by getting the two scientists. I guess the scientists were asking for outrageous sum of money, 10 million each, and then he decided that, okay, they can develop it, but I'm not gonna pay. Very Blofeldian or Spectrian move, I guess. And Kind of something where you see where the character of Dr. Evil came to be in the Austin Power franchise. Yeah, and actually, in this film, it was supposed to be Blofeld once again. Bond versus Blofeld and the Spectre organization. But once again, as we have noted before, there is this guy called Kevin McClory, who was involved with Thunderball. And he got the co-writing credit for Thunderball. And he was the sole producer, as he wanted in the Thunderball, the film. And during the Thunderball time, they made a deal. Broccoli, Saltzman... And Kevin McClory agreed that Kevin McClory is not allowed to do his own James Bond film in the next 10 years. But now in 77, the time had run out. He was allowed to do his own Bond film that he so much wished to do based on the Thunderball material. And um, he basically was able to make a clause, or however, however you would describe that once again, where he would have the right to use the characters of Blofeld and Spectre and the Eon Productions were unable to use them. That's the issue, and one of the issues for the three-year gap between The Man with the Golden Gun and this film. This Gogol's office shootings, they are the first shootings they have done for this film, on August 31st, 1976, at Pinewood Studios. The associate producer, William B. Cartledge, was sent to Japan to go look for ideas for the, this James Bond film. And there was an underwater sea laboratory in Okinawa that rose and submerged like Stromberg's lair. So that's the genesis, the origins of that. We're introduced to Chos and Sander at the same scene. And Chos and Sander are based 
kind of roughly on actually the characters that are in the book, the original Ian Fleming novel, which Ian Fleming himself did not want to be put on film for whatever reasons. They were allowed to use the title The Spy Who Loved Me, but not use the plot elements in any way. The book was completely different from the film. Very, very different. They made it differently because they were not allowed to use the original material. Since Jaws now finally makes his first franchise appearance, I have been wanting to ask this one from you guys. What is your take on Jaws? Or like... Love it or hate it? Well, of course, in the in childhood, I enjoyed the character. And it was definitely the favorite baddie character for my sisters. They always wanted to. They always were asking me if they wanted to see a Bond film. Like, could you please put on the one where you have the guy with the steel teeth? Yeah, sure. Let's pop it on. But uh, nowadays, yeah, I think it's like an original character. But it, I'm not really anymore so much into these fantastical characters. Um, he's my second favorite villain, actually. I like him more here, much more than in Moonraker. He's not that kind of a total joke here yet. Yeah, he well, will become that in Moonraker. Well, in Moonraker, he didn't become. He found happiness, you know. Yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. Yeah. Also, that moment with the little girl or something. Yeah, and they drifted off somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, I, I've been interested to ask that because I also have had the similar kind of relationship with the character that I liked him a lot when I was a kid and watched the Bond movies as a child. And as I have grown older, I've actually grown less and less tolerant of, of chores. And in chores, I, I've started to feel that in chores there kind of appears the level of desperation from the franchise's side to try to reach in to the back old good times so to speak because to me these days Jaws looks extremely a lot of the franchise trying to once again have that iconic bad guy like old job and that's what it is it's an iconic one of the most memorable characters yeah it, it is but at, at the same time to me the character is bit shit when I, when <laughs> okay. I look at him today. And it's also coming from the original source material. So in that sense, it's not desperation. It's In the book, you had a character of soul horror who had steel-capped teeth. So you have Jaws. And then you had Slugsy Morant, another hench guy who had a bald head. And in the film, he's Sandor. Where's Fakash? Pyramids! <laughs> <laughs> oh! What a helpful chap. Yeah. But there's actually two books related to the spy. Of course, there's the Ian Fleming version. And then there is the one written by Christopher Wood, the guy who co-wrote the script for this with Richard Maybaum. Novelized in 77, and the name was James Bond, The Spy Who Loved Me. Got generally good feedback. There are some differences in the book and the film, like Bond is being tortured in this book over the microchip. It's Fleming-esque in its style, has a smirch, and the character of Stromberg, his full name is now Sigmund Stromberg. And um, there's also the moment when the henchman Sandor falls from the roof, but in the book he falls onto a piano, and would reuse this in the film Moonraker, as we know. 
play it again, Sam. That's a way too good of a joke to be spent on a Moonraker. That's the joke that is in the film. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's still too good of a joke. It actually references a classic movie and a classic line from that movie. And then you are making Moonraker of all the goddamn films. Moonraker is the best film in the history of film. I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm starting to refuse to even talk to you, man. <laughs> the play it again, Sam, is actually, well, pretty much the probably the most misquoted line in cinema history, as some would like to say. As it is, as it is. It's a supposed line from Casablanca, and the line is actually played, Sam. Okay, yeah. it's played uh, once, Sam, for all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Ilsa. Play it, Sam. Play as times goes by. Oh, I can't remember it, Miss Ilsa. I'm a little rusty on it. I'll hum it for you. Da, 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 da. Sing it, Sam. And another line from the exact same uh, that often is is offered as a as the right line instead of play it again, Sam, would be Humphrey Bogart's remark: "You played it for her. You can play it for me." Mm-hmm. So Stromberg cancels the transfer of. Ten million dollars each, and uh, the funeral was at sea. Now we get James Bond to Egypt, and the sexism is about to get into full swing. So of course the women are subservants here, and uh, it is time for James Bond, at least according to him, to delve deeply into well Egypt's treasures. And and it's kind of a unbelievable that. Uh, I actually many can make this statement, but Bond's antics and what he says, and even the fact that a woman is just simply offered to him, like in the sense that here's a woman, do with her as you please, is not the most troubling aspect of this scene, but it is actually the extremely submissive look on the woman's face as she is being offered to Bond. Like that reads to me. As someone who has been whipped properly to make make her servant. I always thought that she looked like she has no idea what these two guys are talking about. Probably not speaking English. Most likely not. She just seems very meek, meek and mild. Meek actually would be kind of a kind of a word I I was looking for. E- except. In her case, I really get the sense that it's not meek by nature, but meek by being forced into submission at some earlier point. With all that downcasted eyes and pushing her head down, like, I'm not really even here. Yeah. Please don't hit me. Don't put me in the cellar, please. We are also in Egypt, so... And also that note... (laughs) Burrows itself I- extremely badly these days when, when the entire Islamic culture and, and the prayer call and all that is under fire and often being tied into terrorism by some societal parties. Like Allahu Akbar in itself has actually become a meme tied into a terrorism today. Yeah. So so now, now having this woman casting her head down as she's being offered as a sex toy to Bond, followed immediately by the Islamic prayer call. It It's... I, I get that these films are a reflection of the time period when they were made, and I, I do get that 
the attitudes were different completely back in those days. But today, the whole situation, the whole the, the way how the they scenes change, it has actually managed to become even more troubling. Sometimes it's kind of even unbelievable to watch these scenes and you hear some of these lines, like the closing line here, that one should delve deeply into its treasures. Like, oh my God, this would just never happen today. It's just really uncomfortable to watch. At least for me, like, it, yeah, it, it kind of is. It kind of is, and at the same time, I also feel that it's kind of a sad to watch these days because you also see exactly how much the society has changed and how much mm. basically these days these movies have to dwell with unfair amount of kicking into the teeth simply because you just can't watch these scenes the same way today. I like Morse face after. Hossein says, the gentleman you will be eventually be dealing with is a certain Max Calva. And he goes like, eventually? That's <laughs> a good face. <laughs> Aziz Fakesh is kind of like the intermediary who negotiates with the clients. And through that, you get to the big boss, Max Calva. Eventually? From here, we get to Fakesh's apartment. You know, as a kid, I was really scared of this close-up of Sander's eye. At maybe one of the most scariest Bond films. Really? Yeah. Then there is this kind of a next subservant lady. Mr. Fekish asked me to entertain you while you're waiting. Oh, really? Then Bond goes to check if Fekish is hiding behind the door or something. <laughs> <laughs> Would, wouldn't it make more sense for Sander also to be at the, at the pyramids? I don't know about you, but Bond has not yet been in touch with the microfilm. Like Stromberg stated earlier, whoever comes into contact with the microfilm must be eliminated. He hasn't been in contact with the microfilm yet. Sander could just kill Fekesh, kill Kalba, and be done with it. Retrieve the microfilm. As a secondary objective, you could kill the agents, I guess, but not as a mission priority. Bond seems to have missed the dessert. We all need desserts. Mm. I wonder if Barbara Bach was referring to, for example, this scene that James Bond would be using the girl as a shield. Well, I think it's perfectly clear that James Bond notices the shooter at the moment that the woman starts shouting and Bond is unable to do any moves at that point. But it just uh, so happens that he manages to shoot the woman instead. I don't know. To me, it has always read like the Bond actually uses the girl as a shield. And when I was a kid, I read the scene as such that the woman is in on it. Like, she's working with the bad guys. So Bond uses a bad guy to protect himself. I think if you look at the scene, like, more closely, it doesn't give an indication that he would be using it, her as a shield. Wait a minute. <laughs> Precisely. If you go it by frame by frame, in the frame 37, you actually start to see how Bond starts to twist her body. You're right. In a way to push her closer to the direction of the shooter. You're absolutely right. He does this Yankee move right before it cuts. Can I just make a kind of interesting point? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Kind of interesting. We've already spoken about how it was kind of acceptable to display sexism in the 1970s or it was just their error, you know. In Skyfall, I think I've detected a slight trace of sex in two when Silver ties up the girl, you know, and puts the glass of scotch on her head and kills her. Bond didn't show much sympathy. 
Rocky just said it's it's a waste of good scotch. Oh, that's just uh, that's just Daniel Craig being in his character uh, of James Bond that he doesn't have any feelings, just like me. I I, I took it as that it was Bond to, trying to bluff Silva at, still at that point, and yeah, because of oh. that he did not. Bond, the character, did not show any emotion. That too. You can kind of see where I'm coming from, though, right? I, I can. I can perfectly see your point. I can, but always thought it was just Bond playing the tough guy and not showing his intentions at, at all to Silva. And moreover, he'd had, he had no choice but to shoot her. It's just general theme of Bond, not giving a fuck about women, you know? It is. It is. It, it is kind of one of the stable characteristics of the character wow guys this moment at 27 minutes and 37 seconds you see the long shot there's bond in the distance approaching the crowd who are sitting in awe looking at the pyramid show yeah you look at the crowd there's some some kind of a bug in the image you see some moving parts behind or between the like crowd the crowd, which is a still shot, there's something funny going on there. Wow, that's pretty bad. Really? Yeah, yeah. There are there are holes in the in the plate image. You can see through it, and there's some kind of a moving picture behind it. Do you see it? Uh, can you give me the time code again? Yeah, yeah, the time. Twenty-seven thirty-seven. Well, that's really scary. That's done in a hurry. I actually, yeah. Now that you mentioned it, and I actually freeze-framed it on on that moment, it pretty much is like holy shit! It's it's kind of like it's it's like they're in a different dimension. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> it's just a bunch of rotting corpses. That's all it is. Whoa. That too, and moving stuff. Yeah, they had to do some matte painting in this scene because. They first tried to film the actual pyramids, but because of lighting issues, they had to do the matte paintings. They were on on location though, but particular shots had to be matte paintings. Funny how Triple X is always like a little step behind. For example here, she just seems to trust that Fekish is gonna come back. She sits there for a while, and in that moment Bond gets like a, some headway here. More funny editing is at... 2921. On 2921, you see Bond on the right side of the screen, staying away from view. And this is a still shot, because they needed this shot, but they didn't have it, so they took some stock image of Roger Moore, and they just used this one, and nobody really noticed this. And it's a pretty good one. You can't really notice it until you really look at it. It's a still shot. You see that one? 2921. Yep. Yeah, now now seeing. Yeah, nicely done though. It is, it is. The the effect actually is it's incredibly believable here. Like you don't really notice unless you freeze the frame and once again look at it in in freeze frame, studying the single frame alone, you don't actually see where they switch it. Yeah, in the crowd, Michael T. Wilson, one of the nowadays producers of the franchise. He's doing a cameo in the crowd. Now, of course, Jaws bites the steel with steel, I guess, and kills Fekish. But because he's kind of just a, this brute force killer, he doesn't really care about getting the calendar from Fekish. So Bond is able to retrieve it later. 
Bond goes to get the calendar, comes back outside, meets Anya, then a bunch of KGB thugs start to kick Bond. One of the thugs is played by Bob Simmons, the very regular stunt coordinator of the Bond franchise. All the way from the early days, from Russia with Love and all that. You know, the names are Boris and Ivan, the most stereotypical Russian names. Boris and uh, Ivan. <laughs> yeah, of course. Another time code, if you want to look at it, it's at 3235. And this is kind of weird. So in all the other shots, or no, actually, there's more shots without Roger Moore. There's a couple of shots. One is at 3235, where it's very clear that Roger Moore is not there. It's a stunt guy. But I, I don't know. I I somehow get actually conned by the stuntman here. Like, when it comes to the switch between the stuntman and Roger Moore, I I actually don't see it. Could I, I just... don't question... I don't, I don't question that it isn't there. I'm merely noting that my shitty attention span keeps on missing, you know, the swift. In the Open University produced TV series documentary concerning The Spy Who Loved Me from the 70s, the stunt coordinator Bob Simmons says there's something like, you know, it doesn't matter if I don't look like Roger Moore. It only matters that from which angles you are going to shoot the stuntman to get the wanted effect. Yeah, but I would have to disagree with Bob Simmons a little bit here because, well, of course I have seen this film like 550 million times, but I can tell when it's Bob Simmons and not Roger Moore. I mean, it's too obvious. And he appears, or some stunt guy appears, in surprising moments, like there's just a simple jump from not from very high, and it's somebody else than Roger Moore. So, stuntman, way overused. My name is Bond, James Bond. What of it? Good line. There are surprising a lot of good one-liners in this one. Yeah, true. Yes. Yeah. That is something that I actually have to give give for the film. Soon Triple X joins them, and uh, the kind of the auction for the microfilm is about to start. And Max Calva delivers this line. You'll find the lady's figure hard to match. Again, this I think is very sexist because at the moment when he's saying that he's just looking directly at James Bond, not at all at the girl. Uh, so I think this is kind of making her like on the object here, not somebody to worth addressing or make her feel part of the conversation. Or it could just be that really Max Galba was lying and he was fancying James Bond. Again, when it comes to Bond franchise and sexism, this is kind of the tiniest offenders in that category. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. Thunderball is pretty bad. Honor Majesty's is pretty horrifying in that sense. Um, the Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean the movie, but this individual moment, like this okay. scene. Yeah. I, I myself, I was more troubled by the submissive servant girl back at the tent scene. Kalba conveniently receives an important phone call at this moment. Totally buys this. Joe does his thing. Funny close-up on Kalba at that moment. The face of terror. And once again, just like at the pyramids, Roger Moore kind of fakes his exit from the scene by saying another one. No. Bond goes first. Notices dead Kalba. Somehow magically when Anya exits the club... She does not notice 
the dead Calva right there on the corridor and asks what happened. Bond puts the out of order on Max Calva. Well played. You see when James Bond jumps out of the window at 38.05, clearly it's not Roger Moore. Not sure why they needed somebody to replace for that little jump. I, I still can't, you know, see the difference. Okay. Once again, not claiming that that isn't a stuntman. It's not like you say it is, but I, I don't know. This goddamn film just keeps on fooling me. You know, I can look at uh, Roger Moore's face from individual years, and I can tell you from which year that photograph is without knowing it. Wow. So, and so, and yeah. that's precisely why I am the co-host here, and you own the podcast. Because I watched too much of Bond in my childhood. But yeah, our agents get into the van. You gotta wonder why she really didn't notice Galba lying in the phone booth on her way out, but she didn't. A little bit of uh, sexism time, I guess, again in the van. When Anya falls asleep, it's time to have some inappropriate touching a bit. (laughs) Actually, I I quite liked that scene. And I most definitely liked Roger Moore's reaction. (laughs) When she wokes up all, uh, suddenly and there, there's and Moore makes that oh blimey face on the moment. And Anya's face is like, get the hell off me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I think that it's moments like these where, where w- once again, that bit troubling legacy of the character of James Bond is actually played very well and used for good comedy. Yeah, it depends how the other one, of course, sees it by... But by taking the Barbara Bach's comments in 1983 in People's Magazine, it kind of puts a bad light on this whole thing. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a... To, to me, it's a bit how you take it. I'm, I'm not discrediting the comment in itself. Because when it comes to... I'm already starting to sound like a goddamn broken record here. But the sexism is one of the characteristics of Bond. James Bond. He, he's always been like that and he will always be a sexist. No no matter, you know, how how much irk that might raise. Much more. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> getting I'm, enough I'm, of this already. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, try, I, I'm trying to defend Bond here, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I actually have a great closing line for you guys. You could say we'll be back next week with more, much more. Thank you. <laughs> don't, don't, don't give him any ideas. <laughs> Jesus. This is an interesting shot where it's centered on the pillars and Jaws is seen in the background walking on a plank between pillars. You know, cinematography-wise, like it's giving us the center of the pillars, but you have to look at the like upper left corner to see the guy. It's like a spot the thing kind of a frame. And some fun for the pan scan editor to zoom in on that part. It's also one of the best sequences in the film. Yeah. I would say that this might be my favorite scene in the movie. This mm-hmm. this moment when Jaws is stalking the heroes. There we have to fight and uh, when it finishes and the the kind of the building part of the building collapses, there is the quip Egyptian builders. This quote was Lipped out, or however you say that, when they were shooting it, and the voice wa- was added in post. Reason being because the Egyptian authorities were so closely monitoring the filming that they had to do it later in England. 
It, it's almost like the film crew also knew what wasn't entirely proper as they were making this stuff. <laughs> Good point. But they thought it was proper to do this, let's try reverse, that's backwards. Or, would you like me to drive? And woman drivers. And I, w- I would say, this is these scenes where Bond's sexism ceases to be funny, and where it comes just nasty, borderline obnoxious, because it's just quip after quip after quip about the same card name sub- subject, and because of that, be- because Bond, because of how the scene plays out, that it's Anya who gets behind the wheel, Bond has to sit next to her, and then Bond simply goes on and on and on about female drivers. It even starts to make Bond look like like a goddamn child, to be completely honest. Like he's giving this much shit constantly simply because he's not allowed behind the wheel. Well, it's uh, about the kind of competition that is going on between the characters. But, I mean, if they would have left it at, would you like me to drive? That on its own could have been really funny because it doesn't make a comment about women drivers or or that nasty, let's try reverse, that's backwards, that came really wrong. Or if it would have been like they do it later on in the film where it's quips and comments about the Soviet regime. Like, how about trying that one? Because obviously the film can also handle that point. But she kind of, in the scene, she kind of punches back with the shaken but not stirred line. But still not enough to get back at Bond, in my view. Well, she threatens to kill him later on, so... Yeah, and then gets captured by Stromberg and uh, Bond has to save the day. Yeah, and even the threatening to kill Bond is tied into... Bond killing her boy toy or, or lover or wh- whatever the random Russian henchman number 37 was supposed to be. Mm. Well, the car breaks down and uh, she knows something about cars in this film. The cylinder head gasket. Do you know about cars? Apparently it's something that kind of... Pff, pff, I, yeah, maybe I'll shut up. I, I, I know that it burns out quite often in films. <laughs> And they walk off from the car, and this is the moment where you hear Lawrence of Arabia playing. And this is where I actually tied this movie very closely, or this scene very closely to the moment in Quantum of Solace, where also Bond and the Bond girl of that film have to walk through the desert in clothes that are way too nice for being taking a stroll through the desert. A tuxedo. A tuxedo and whatever evening dress the ladies wearing. That's true, now that you say that, in a similar way, pictured there, yeah. So they run to the boat, Ponces Tana, it means wait, and then he says, kind of in a, like an orderly fashion, it's not a question or request, like, would you take me to Cairo? Apparently he says, take me to Cairo, and the guy says, yes, welcome, but what Pond tells to Anya is that he says that, Oh, he thinks that we are a little bit overdressed, but he will take us to Cairo. You could take it as a way that the Bond was just cracking a joke about what he said, of course. I like this uh, boat ride very much. The beautiful backdrop. It really looks like they were on a boat. Kind of hard to say if, if it was a backdrop or is it like a like real backdrop at the location. Probably not. I, I myself, I like the fact that when it comes to the competition angle between the two characters... This is the one that works better. 
and the one where when taking the competition in mind, the pawn's quips are, in my opinion, way smarter and actually plays more into the competition aspect. Because this is the one where pawn makes jokes about Siberia and jokes on the Soviet Union as a country and as an institution. And since they are supposed to be competitors, I actually feel that the jokes here land much better than in the earlier scene. I really like the Siberian training discussion. It's great. Yeah. But but then it comes to this moment when they start kissing and then Anya stops and Bond says, just when it was starting to get interesting, and that was terrible for me. Eh. I, I I don't know I don't know he, that that is still when it comes to Bond that, that is kind of a low level sexism. But as you have said, sexism still nonetheless. <laughs> I would say, still or not, or not. But but, well. but kind of yucky. Like this this guy was kind of sounds like he expected this to go through. Well, of course he expected that one to go through because Bond <laughs> is well known horn dog. <laughs> like. Like like we actually saw in the previous episode, Bond made the crucial mistake of trying to kill Blofeld instead of just signing in on the clinic as a patient. <laughs> this, this, what, we, what we see now in this film is the harrowing consequences of that decision. Bond wakes up and a lot of nice scenery establishing and then we get to money penny maybe the shortest money penny scene in the franchise i also begs the question exactly how much pull does the brits have in egypt since they have actually enough power to turn whatever this temple which looks like a landmark into one of their headquarters true well are you referring in the in the plot sense or yeah. in the filming sense Plot sense, yeah, mostly because I I can't believe that this is actually I would now that you mention it in filming sense would be interesting to know exactly how much did this cost. I suppose this was back in Pinewood, but you never I, know. I I would also guess that this is done in a sound stage or the studio halls. But you know, a, a small part of me would like to keep on pretending to himself that this was shot on location. And that it caused arm and a leg. Oh yeah, finally there is the cue scene with the curious flotation device. Seems to be some confusion about the first name of Gogol. In the film, let's see, M says after you Alexis. But in the credits he is listed as Anatole Gogol. Curious case. There's also some other name confusion later on in this film. But let's check out that later. One podcast was wondering why anyone would be so stupid to leave the Stromberg laboratory marks on the copy that they are investigating with the queue. Well, my question is, why would the potential robber even care? Because it's quite obvious that the robber has scanned these or copied these papers. He was in a hurry and just two copies and who cares about the prints that may be in the background. And it's the film where M's first name is apparently revealed. It's Miles. Ooh. I liked very much this whole competition thing going on between these two agents and the fact that we're doing this detente between Russia and the British or the West. But what I don't like really is like one other podcast mentioned, can't remember which one, that 
we mix this whole thing up with uh, the United States. I mean, it gets a little bit more complicated in that moment. They could have just kept it between these two nations, in my opinion. Well, this is followed by the train scene. Director Gilbert was was not sure if they should go with the train scene because he felt like, well, we have seen train scenes before, like in this goddamn podcast as well, in From Russia with Love, and in Live and Let Die, but uh, producer Broccoli felt that uh, there's nothing wrong with the train scene because trains are exciting and have to kind of agree. True. I mean, Bond has the crappiest look on train. (laughs) That is also true. Crappiest look? Look. I don't get it. Look. L-U-C-K. Oh, well, that's true. In fact, he has crappy look in all forms of travel. Kinda, kinda. In the premiere, Richard Gill forgot that uh, he was about to pop up from the closet and he jumped during the premiere. And once again, a fight sequence choreographed by Bob Simmons, really playing the game with the size difference between these guys, which is kind of nice. And when Jaws' character flies through the window, it's actually Bob Simmons going through a real plexiglass. Somehow, miraculously, he survived the whole thing, just got a few cuts, apparently. I kind of thought that it was kind of a nasty comment for Anya to ask, do you still like traveling by train? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's very low. (laughs) But she also asks him, well, she tells him that she knows about his wife's death, and she says, oh, you're very sensitive. That was, yeah. And it's a special moment in the Bond franchise, making any of these connections with the old films or the books. Yeah. He came in for a quick bite. <laughs> Such lovely lines. Yeah, but there is this uh, cue scene. Once again, it's the time to deliver Lotus, the car of the film. Oh, which was bought by Elon Musk two years ago. Yeah, it was the submarine version of it, right? He wanted to research how to create this double function car which would turn into a submarine but i really have no idea why he would why elon musk would buy that because first of all it was just a prototype when you put it on the water it has this motor but that's all you you can't even go in because it's full of water when it's submerged so what's the point maybe elon was just desperate to somehow get and try to save some kids from a game at that point. Well, I have to say that Elon Elon Musk is still alive, and we have to be careful not to add to our already long list of lawsuits. <laughs> yeah, but the guy bought that prototype car for like half a million dollars or more. What is he going to do with that? You know, you could, you could have just watched some pictures on Google or something. Well, he's a genius, you know. Uh, yeah, that or... I don't know if he buys that car. You know, genius maybe are a little bit too kind of forgiving. Sounds like to me that he has a lot of money to spread around and he just bought it thinking that it's somehow fully functional or something. Q, have I ever let you down? Yes, frequently. Oh, money penny being a little bit of over-efficient. Two beds. And finally we're introduced to the goddess Naomi, played by Caroline Munro. Not sure what happens with this line delivery. Bond says, this is my wife, who also happens to be my assistant. Kind of weird. And it continues like this. You are on holiday here? Sterling or Bond replies. Where there's an ocean, a marine biologist is never on holiday. And as kindly pointed out by the Twitter account, the bubbles tickle my 
Tchaikovsky. Um, Bond kind of is almost blowing his cover right away here because Mediterranean, where they are located in Sardinia, it's a sea, not an ocean, to be exact, in this podcast. Yeah, George Lazenby actually did this whole undercover spy thing way better than Roger Moore's Bond. That's pushing it. Yeah, I guess Moore's Bond is just joking around when he is supposed to be in character. Moore's Bond makes really stupid mistakes every now and so often, only to kind of save his cover by the skin of his teeth by getting that one extremely hard trick question right. Like, for example, here he manages to point out that one fish that the main bad guy asks of him, well, what, what is the fish? And that Bond does know. But it, it, he, he does get the little details, like, like you know, mixing ocean and sea. Yeah, I kind of always felt that he kind of treats this, at least Roger Moore's Bond treats these characters that he's supposed to be playing as kind of a joke, that he doesn't even believe in them himself. Naomi is voiced over for some reason by a British actor, Barbara Shefford. Yeah, we get to Atlantis and uh, Bond knows the fish. But of course, uh, Pterois volitans. It's a red lionfish, toxic as hell. Apparently, if you get bitten by it, it's not necessarily lethal. You put some hot water on the bite mark and hope for the best. And many hospitals are not even equipped for dealing with this poison. But the medical... Uh, assistance must definitely be needed because it might be deadly in some situations. So I've heard urine, piss, cures jellyfish wounds and fish bites, aquatic injuries. Piss will treat will treat the wound. Okay, true. Remember that one. Uh, I see you also have seen the Nicole Kidman film Paperboy. But of course. But if piss works, I just. I just hope you don't get bitten on your face because I'm because I will treat you with respect. I'm not pissing on your face. Such handsome craft, such lovely lines. Do you want more? <laughs> of <laughs> Roger Moore. For <laughs> curva. <laughs> In the boat on the way to Atlantis, Bond is giving this eye to Naomi, and meanwhile. Anya is getting this pissed off face, like, what's going on between these two? And it's kind of creepy, considering that the film title is still The Spy Who Loved Me, and there's this thing going on, once again. Well, maybe Bond doesn't love her just yet. Like, love is what happens just before the end credits. Oh, okay. Or or then it's referencing that random Russian henchman who gets killed in the opening scenes. But looks like in real life, Caroline Munro and Roger Moore had a pretty close, warm relations until his death. Uh, they did host some conferences regarding James Bond. We get to Atlantis. More funny lines. Now, don't be a bother to Naomi, darling. And yeah, that was the Stromberg scene. Bond returns to Naomi and Anya. There's kind of a weird drop in the picture quality. I suppose it's because this one overlay... The window is added to the image. And Jaws gets some instructions. Let them get to shore and then kill them. Followed by car chase. And there's a lot of chases. And there's a lot of action scenes here. And at this point, it's just starting to get a little bit long on the tooth. I mean, the car chase is really well done. 
one of my favorite scenes in the film. So I forgive that, but when it gets to the underwater car sequences, it's getting a little bit too much for me. There's a fun moment with what kind of things are included in this car, like Bond's bird shit bomb that blocks the view <laughs> of the window. <laughs> I like the flirtation from Naomi from the window of the helicopter. Of course, they are perfectly able to wink at each other from the windows, but it's movie magic. Hello. Hello. Yep. Oh, yeah. Still, Still here. here. Yeah. Just admiring the stupidity of the moment when Bonham's car turns into the submarine. It's genius. It's not genius the least. Ne- neither is that one moment when Anya blinds the chasing mini-sub by, I guess, by spilling the motor oils into the ocean and polluting the whole goddamn ocean. <laughs> this way, actually showing that Stromberg has a point in his mad plan. <laughs> what is kind of nice, though, is that there were apparently seven different versions of the car. The car that enters the water is one car. Then there's one car that enters the uh, water from, from the water side. Then there are three different versions of the transition from the normal car to the submarine car. Then there's also something else. And then there is, the, of course, the final version, which is the motorized prototype car. Not sure if it's full scale or what, but uh, yeah, it's motorized and full of water. And the bubbles that come from the car are apparently from some tablet that they just added into the side of the car. Vitamin pill or something. I wonder why the underwater version of the car has the windows half blocked with this black stuff. It seems kind of unnecessary. Since we're talking about the underwater stuff in the film, did you guys ma- actually manage to make head or tales about the Stromberg's plan? Like, I... I no, no. I, 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 I got the whole... I'm raising the generation of Ubermensch in my underwater base thing, but how on earth was that guy actually supposed to work, you know, stuff like electricity, plumbing, food production, and kind of small details like that? Oxygen. (laughs) Well, it's all in the ocean. It's the whole world for him. So, solves the problem. I guess he had figured all that shit out before doing his master plan. What I don't really get is that he wants to blow up with nuclear missiles Moscow and New York and this causes a nuclear war and he just supposes that it, well, he supposes that it will lead to a nuclear war which it most probably will but then to take the assumption that all life will move into the ocean after that moment. And moreover, why? Why is he he so obsessed with the, well, okay, it's a crazy guy. Obsessed with ocean. <laughs> yeah, it's it's also like I, I didn't fully understand what was the point he was trying to achieve with this whole my own breed of superhumans thing. I, I did do he know, say that? I know that it's in Moonraker, but here it's also here. Like he he was planning on having his own. He he doesn't directly say übermensch or superhuman or anything like that but New he does make humans. it clear that he's he's still trying to have his own chosen civilization to live yeah. on, on underwater and 
Yeah, sure, this is something that Bond stories have done kind of repeatedly. Like you pointed out, it, it's also the main plot of Moonraker, but it's also a plot, for example, in some of the comic book arcs about James Bond. Like, for example, that one storyline where there was that half-man, half-reptilian fish guy who also wanted to live, if I remember correctly, also under the sea in his own civilization and destroy the topside world. Yeah, we haven't even addressed the similarities between plots. So there are three movies. They are all Lewis Gilbert movies in the franchise. It's all, all almost like... The dude came up with one trick and then he just repeated it. Yeah, well, for Gilbert's defense, uh, Christopher Wood is, I guess, mostly responsible for the repetition in The Spy Who Loved Me and then in Moonraker. So the first film that did this trick was You Only Live Twice, where you have a spaceship eating spaceships and then delivering them to Blofeld Space in the volcano. Yeah, that was stupid also. Yeah, and here we have... Uh, Ship-eating ships. Ship-eating ships, basically. No, a ship eating a submarine. And then in Moonraker, well, it's kind of a weirder. It's stealing the Moonrakers from ab- above a ship to his secret base. <laughs> and also trying to destroy the world with some bombs for a new super race. It's it's kind of like there came, came a point in time after which Bond villains simply kind of gave up on logic and rationality and simply, you know, started all this stuff simply for shits and giggles. Yeah, when it comes to the Moonraker, it's starting to get really repetitious and boring at that point for me. Well, Bond has always been that way. I mean, the villain Renard was shot in the head and still managed to survive, you know? So it's, it's always kind of had that science fiction quality to it. Yeah, but at least he wasn't trying to steal some submarines with his submarine or something well yeah (laughs) (laughs) well okay the car comes from the water finally to the beach we pointed with tom franklin franklin tom franklin that you have (laughs) you have these dolls in the car when it comes from underneath the water yeah they, they jump stupidly in the car yeah and in in barbara bach's model you can kind of see some kind of cut in the neck this courtesy of Blu-ray quality. Yes, yes. Strange, eh? Bond throws the fish out of the car. Getting really goofy here. And then we have one of the best scenes in any Bond film, I would say. The moment when Bond and uh, Anya realize that uh, Bond has actually killed uh, the boyfriend of Anya. Ooh, deep. Yeah, there's some actual drama. It's just not this lightweight comedic stuff now all the time but you actually have some real drama building up, which is kind of a special in Roger Moore's Bond films as well. Uh, kind of, because usually in in most of the Roger Moore's films, I would say the films avoided going into that heavy stuff, drama-wise, that there was some of it. And this is this is not the only film where, where the subject of heavy drama has been touched. For Your Eyes Only is the other one, I guess. Yeah. That, that was what I was getting at also, where there is the losing of the parents and the revenge plot. And uh, maybe this film has the best acting from Roger Moore in his Bond run. He gets to, you know, also play these different ranges of emotions. And I would say that his performance here is perhaps even better than, than what he was doing in The Man Who Haunted Himself, also a film that we watched in this podcast which Moore claimed was his favorite 
performance from his career. Could be favorite, but I wouldn't say the best when looking at this necessarily. At least this one is more enjoyable. Yeah. I don't know if that's how much that is because of Roger Moore and how much that is because of how his James Bond was written. Because Moore himself has stated that he wasn't too fond of his Bond years. Roger Moore? Yeah, Roger Moore. I'm not, you know, joining in in your Moore joke here. No, no, not trying to pull that, but... Well, I haven't gotten that idea, I mean. But he what? has always played it so that he kind of belittles his own career and his ability as an actor, and he's always making jokes about it. And he I don't know. kind of considers the later parts of his life way more important when he's doing, like, work for UNICEF and, yeah. To me, the remark he made that the man who haunted himself was the only film where he actually was allowed to act instead of simply being all smile and teeth. To me, that kind of a read as such that more doesn't think too highly about the Bond films. Um, I wouldn't say that. He did, after all, seven Bond films and was ready to call it a day after The Spy Who Loved Me, but he did For Your Eyes Only, and then... You know, it was the Battle of the Bonds for Octopussy when Sean Connery did Never Say Never Again, so Roger Moore was called back. And then A View to a Kill, for whatever reason, he did also that. Then finally got tired and decided that I'm getting too old of old for this, and it looks like I could be the father of the leading ladies. Yeah, could be. You're, you are the more expert of the two of us. Resisting the urge to make a more joke. Okay. You are not making a more joke here. <laughs> I, I'm forever ceasing to give you the compliments. If every time I actually try to be nice with you, I, I get hit with, with a more joke. <laughs> <laughs> Bond and Anya enter the submarine that is going to be taken over by Stromberg once again. And here you have the, the actor who here plays uh, Commander Carter. The actor's name is Shane Reamer. He has actually four credits in different Bond films. He was the Hawaii radar operator in You Only Live Twice. Uh, he was uncredited. He played in Diamonds Are Forever, a guy called Tom, uncredited. He played in Live and Let Die, a guy called Hamilton, only voice via a uh, speaker. I think it was in the scene where Felix Leiter is in his, you know, New York office or something. And then here in The Spy Who Loved Me. I remember seeing him in <laughs> You Only Live Twice and the others and then the Kind of looking at this film and, hmm, this guy seems quite familiar. Where have I seen this face? And as we have noted throughout this episode, they keep kind of recycling these certain characters over and over again. Or these uh, same actors. That they do. And it's actually a bit surprising because you would kind of think that Bond films would actually avoid doing that. Yeah, there's actually when the car comes from the sea... At the beach, there is this also this guy with the wine bottle, I guess. And he looks at his bottle like, has he been drinking too much? Because he can see this. And the same actor appears as kind of a, like an inside joke in a similar fashion in Moonraker and For Your Eyes Only, the two next films after this one. Okay, I myself, I haven't noticed that. Yeah, it's... Um... I, I, I'm lacking in observations here. It appears. Yeah, well, you're up against the guy who has seen these films 500 million times, so I can't blame you. 
we get some, you know, shots of the Liberus model, which looks very convincing. And indeed, uh, the Bond crew was about to use a real tanker for the external shots and to shoot some scenes, I guess, on top of the tanker. But it turned out that uh, this out-of-service tanker was more risky to use than a tanker in service. Because after you remove all the oil from the tanker, there's still a lot of gas floating around in the air. And, you know, maybe you fart, maybe you try to light up a cigar and the whole thing would go boom. So if they would have taken that risk and paid the $50,000 per day insurance for this tanker, then they could have gotten their filming done there. But even Bond crew had to say no at the $50,000 and that kind of a risk. So they went with the models. And it was a pretty big model, actually. You could totally walk on top of this model. I'm not sure how to, you know, say what the size was, but yeah, big. And pretty impressive because some of the Shell XX were invited to the premiere. They were looking at these external shots and they were like, but, but so how did you get the real tanker into your film? And they had to explain, no, that's not real. That's the biggest compliment you can probably get as a model maker. Sub is swallowed. This whole design of the ship kind of makes you question. Would this even be possible to open the front and not sink? I guess with some smart design you could make it not sink, but it's kind of the place of the ship which should not be opened, right? So. It actually feels and looks pretty dangerous in that regard. When you, when you see it, I, I am not a shipbuilding expert, so I don't know. Would that be possible? But the common sense kind of a dictates that if, if you have a ship, you want to keep the water out and not in. Right. <laughs> the yeah. seawater would be coming in, in some way. <laughs> yeah. In some quantity. But then, then the question does re- really remain, how does it come out and at what quant- quantity? Because if, if the ship is swallowing submarines, it's actually taking in a hell of a lot of water at that moment. Yeah. Like a, a lot more. Yeah. So more. so your usual god damn it you guys. Your usual pumping mechanism couldn't actually pump the water out fast enough. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to build ships here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm so happy when, when after we finished recording the Moonraker episode that we are done with more. <laughs> okay, no more, more jokes, okay? <laughs> <clears throat> you have to remain professional. I'll start being professional. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Conry will save the episode in post. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> so now, now, of course, we are inside the 007 stage that was uh, specifically built for this purpose. I mean, uh, the production designer Ken Adam had built a huge <clears throat> backlot set for You Only Live Twice for the Volcano. But unfortunately, it had to be deconstructed after it was built, and it was also an eyesore. But here they made some kind of a big studio for themselves that could be reused in later films as well. 
I know that 007 stage did burn down at some point due to some freak accident and they rebuilt it and it was renamed, was it uh, Copy Broccoli's 007 stage? And there uh, the Stromberg gives out his crazy ass plan that he's going to create the world by bombing two cities. Kind of a stretch in, in my opinion, but this guy is very good at delivering so you can kind of almost, almost buy it. Well, I guess you kind of have to buy it, seeing how a whole bunch of people, enough to form yourself a naval army, has also bought it. Mm-hmm. The instruments of Armageddon. The globe in the center of this room was supposed to be in earlier designs in Atlantis, but they removed it from that design and had to be kind of as a compromise redesigned inside uh, Liparus. Anian Stromberg go back to Atlantis while James Bond starts a war inside Liberus, which is the moment where I'm starting to look at my watch during this film. It runs on too long. Yes. There's just deafening shooting for too long. I think there's like at least a three minute period where it's just about the shooting and the chaos and nothing is kind of going forward. Wasn't a big fan of that. But you know, this is Louis Gilbert. He is here for a reason. He is able to, with his experience, to create these large-scale action scenes. Because he had done a bunch of war movies. Then he came to do the super-scale You Only Live Twice volcano fight. Now he's doing this one, and then he's doing Moonraker, of course, the <laughs> battle in space. So this guy is the scale director, really. But what happens often in these huge-scale fights, I feel, is that the somehow it also kind of loses its focus from the main actor. Like it happens here, there are long moments where we kind of lose Bond into the action and we are following all kinds of different things and side characters for some reason. I kind of liked it, still, even with that notion that we kind of lose, lose the sight of more in in middle or and during the action. Yeah, because you lose more. Much more. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> it's not funny anymore. <laughs> this is the monster of your creation, Kari. <laughs> uh, guilty as charged. No, I, I, uh, I still was with the action, and the reason why I may have enjoyed it as much as I did for for its runtime might be also the reason why we lose the side of side of. And I'm I'm not saying. I'm not giving the actor's name. We lose the sight of Bond during the shooting. <laughs> and that, that is because of because Gilbert's history with war movies. Because that, that shootout kind of plays out like a war movie. And in most of the war movies, you end up following individual characters and individual groups instead of constantly being tied into the main character. Yeah, I guess. And I think the kind of end result then suffers because it kind of loses also character this or focus in my opinion what are we doing here we're just watching a battle that's the point kind of and i i do understand where you two are coming from because that that is something that lends itself well for a war movie but yeah bond movies are about bond they are about an individual character there's a moment at one hour 39 minutes. There's this young officer who calls for Andrews 
James, Marshall and Purvis to follow him to their death. It takes only 15 seconds for this guy to come up with his mission and then he dies, which is kind of funny-ish. But the second thing is that he's calling for Andrews, James, Marshall, Purvis. The thing here is that one of those guys that follows him is from the first submarine scene, from the very beginning. There is this that I mentioned, the young, handsome subcrewman, whose character name is Eddie G. Fraser, and at no point he is calling for Fraser to join him. So the guy has changed name, and it's, it's the last shot of him in cinema history. After this, he disappears from film. Goodbye. <laughs> what? <laughs> Just a good goodbye and a long silence. <laughs> uh, the missile design they have in this movie is coming totally from reality. There is a missile warhead for submarines that looks exactly like that, like black and white coloring. We get some plastic explosives, Bond climbs on top of that very fancy camera, plants the bomb, has some trouble to avoid the bomb, but avoids the bomb, it blows, and we have the moment where the captain says his last words to Bond in like a perfect calmness. You are too late, Bond. Our submarines are already on station. In four minutes, the missiles will be launched. And then he dies. <laughs> he just had to deliver that part of the plot before he goes. He had a mission to do, and by God, he did it. Yep. They reprogrammed the subs to destroy themselves. And of course, even though they have three or four minutes, they are able to do all that by reading a manual. Reprogramming them. Massive explosions. Good enough to do a, t- a tsunami wave. But no problem. They blow a hole to Lipperus to get out with a torpedo. Successfully not dying in the process. They get out, Lipperus sinks. Good job. It's time to destroy Atlantis. But Bond has to get Anya out of there. Because it's the spy who he loved. And who loved him. Because the film just can't be over with yet. Yeah. Multiple endings, by the way. Once again in Bonds. Quite a few this time. And after the long shootout at the ship, these later endings and the film still continuing. It, at this point it actually starts to drag a bit. It does, and I would still blame the whole Lipperous fight for everything, because I think the film is really smooth and interesting and colorful and varied on land, air and underwater before it gets to Lipperous and then it just starts to sink the film a bit. The whole Liberus fight could have worked better for you to had the film ended then and there. Like, after the fight, there would have been also the conclusion of the film. No, no, that would have been lame, but they could have made it possibly like 15 minutes less in length. I don't know, if, if, if Stomberg had been on the ship and the final confrontation with between Bond and Stromberg would have also played during the fighting. Mm, who knows? B- because the payoff that Stromberg gets here, finally, it also is a bit lackluster. Like, in the end, when it comes to Stromberg, who is the main bad guy, and the confrontation that he has with Bond, it's basically just an old man sitting in front of a table and having extremely long gone and nothing else 
it's a gun in a tube. Well, I, I, I actually count that as one continuous gun. Nobody knows, though, why the gun is in the tube. There would be more control if it were not in the tube, right? Well, yeah. I, I, I guess that is basically like every trap that Stromberg has, that it's simply designed for that one situation. By the way, Bond, uh, when he's arriving to Atlantis, he uses the wet bike to go there. It's the first appearance of the wet bike. It's a prototype at this point. And from 1978 onwards, it was on sale until 90s, when it was succeeded by some other competing models. Seems like a kind of cool gadget. Here it's a Q gadget in the film, but has the wet bike logo on it. But yeah... It's time to shoot Stromberg right after this explosion. And kind of a lackluster way of getting rid of our main antagonist, wouldn't you say? Most yeah. definitely. <clears throat> yes. The most anticlimactic kill in the entire film. Now, since we were talking about what if Stromberg would have been challenged already at the Liparos, what do you think about uh, something like when Stromberg is about to exit Liparos? then the war would be kind of in this in its final stages. Stromberg would take the boat, like he does in the film, with Anya. Then Bond would have kind of a, some boat device thing of his own. He would follow them, maybe even go all the way to Atlantis, and then the final scene would happen somewhere there, and the whole shit would blow up and something like that. Now what we have here is the multiple end- endings, because there is some space in between these action scenes which is kind of not good for the pacing. And the infamous, let's get the jaws teeth into a magnet. And this director has some fascination with giant magnets, right? <laughs> How does that grab you, guys? I hate it. I hate it. I, the idea, in my opinion, is bad. Overall, you, you're using a magnet to finish off flesh and bone henchmen. Is but it's already dumb. It also is performed dumbly because it's basically Bond jumping down and Jaws climbing slowly to get to Bond so that Bond can operate the magnet which takes to fucking forever to move. And it also once again does make Jaws laughable and overly comedic. One note side bad guy. I thought it was kind of a fitting ending for now. Yeah, the scene, this scene really pulled me in, you know. Ooh. <laughs> I, I, I got kicked right out of the film once again. Because Jaws is kind of... And how do you kill Jaws if, exactly. not, if not with Magnet? Because he's... By shooting him in that goddamn throat. By okay. burning it with fire. By drowning the bastard. Feeding it to the shark. Like they were, it, they it, they wa- they wanted to keep him alive. I think for a reason because they were not sure if they would keep him in the next one or not, and they kind of kept the option. They wanted to keep him alive because they were hoping that Joe's would have franchise potential. So, in hopes of finally getting the next odd job, they didn't want to finish off Joe's, and it worked well. Not, not in my opinion. Like, yeah, sure, it worked in the sense that they did not finish off Jaws, but not in the sense that 
there, in my opinion, would be anything worth seeing about in the way how Jaws is handled off. But unfortunately, the fact of the matter is that Jaws is one of the most well-known, if not the way more well-known, actually, than Oddjob in the franchise when it comes to baddies. That he is, that he is. Whether you like it or not. I mean, you have to take your hat off to Oddjob. He's tougher and smarter than Jaws, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know, there is just something about Jaws that simply makes my teeth itch. <laughs> <laughs> I had a blast playing GoldenEye as a kid and playing with all these characters. There was the Jaws and Oddjob as extra characters. I, I, I had a blast playing GoldenEye with Oddjob. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I was not above of that of using the cheap tricks. When Roger Moore and Barbara Buck uh, exit Atlantis and there's water flooding in, you see Barbara Bach screaming, and actually that's the real scream of terror from her, because the water pressure and the water flowing was giving her the creeps. Amateur. <laughs> looking for the lawsuit from Barbara Bach. <laughs> yeah, looking for that one also. Should have kept her character on, as long as the cameras were rolling. I mean, the one stuntman who played Michael Myers in Halloween 5 stayed in a burning car. <laughs> That was way worse fucking up. <laughs> well, it, it, it was, but not from the actor's side. <laughs> like. Definitely not. There was certain Dominic Otnan Shira. He, he knew that he, ha- he, ha- he had a job, and the job was to stay in the burning car until Dominic yells cut. And by God, he did it. Finally, after somebody kind of informed him that Dominic maybe should <laughs> yeah. kind of... Call cuts. Good times for us to talk about, not so much for the stunt actor. But uh, they are, Bond and Anya are now in the escape module or whatever it is. And Jaws is seen swimming away, sequel bait, and all the superiors getting a little glance inside the module and obviously just keeping the British end up, sir. Getting a first hand glance at that Anglo Soviet cooperation. Yeah, that's what they were asking for, so there you go. What do you think about this closing quip? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I guess it's good enough. It's okay. I, I, I take the silence from Tom's end as, as my closing off point. Imagine that line without the orchestra following it. That would have been awkward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dumb Bond stuff, once again. That was the spy who loved me, according to my books. That should be it. If there is even a longer version, I don't want to see it. Oh yeah, moving on to the producer's cut of the spy who loved me. No, but uh, there is something to say before we get our quickies fix. What? Still? Still. When it comes to video games, there is uh, the spy who loved me video game, actually. Made in 1990 developed by the Kremlin. Platforms are Amiga, Atari ST, Amstrad, CPC, Commodore 64, MS-DOS, and ZX Spectrum. And uh, did get kind of a mixed reviews. Apparently you drive the Lotus car uh, from like a Grand Theft Auto 2D type of um, angle from above, and you beat the baddies somehow with the Lotus car's tricks. Top-down shooter game. Okay, never played it. 
and judging by your description of the game, I am not shocked at all that it got so mediocre reviews. Also well known that uh, there are many similarly named titles, of course loaned from this film, playing like games with the name. I guess the latest version is The Spy Who Dump, Dumped Me from 2008, a comedy. Of course we have Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shacked Me. <laughs> Maybe you guys know more of these variations, but there are plenty of them. I I do know some of them, but never really touched upon the subject matter outside of Austin Powers films. Those I've made sure to check out, but mostly these obvious comedies which play off with this film's title, like for example Spy Who Dumped Me, I haven't touched upon those. Usually end up skipping all of them. What about the legacy? It's kind of a great comeback, possibly the saving grace for the franchise at this point, since uh, at least one lackluster film before this, The Man with the Golden Gun, no. in my opinion, and uh, the slapstick way that they were choosing with Guy Hamilton, and it was going way overboard, and the sense that they didn't know how to, to adjust their Bond character for Roger Moore, which they correct finally here. So it's kind of the great return-ish. When it comes to sequels, yeah, the next one on the line is Moonraker, which will be our next film after this one when it comes to James Bond. Yay! <laughs> the favorite James Bond film of Frankland, Mr. Tom Frankland. Yes, it is. Yeah, let's uh, talk about that when it's the right time. Favorite performance? Barbara Bach, from my end. Wow, kind of surprising, okay. Because Barbara Bach has gotten a lot of bad words said about his performance, that she is too wooden. I would kind of agree with Henrik here that she does a really good performance. Nothing bad to say about that. It's kind of minimalistic, and that's what Russians are supposed to do anyway. At least in the Bond universe, where they all are stone-faced, one-noted characters. Yeah, but here I guess I will just go with Roger Moore, he's excellent here. But thumbs up for Barbara Bach and Kurt Jurgens as well. Really good patty. Even though there is no like playful chemistry between Kurt Jurgens and Roger Moore, or their characters in this film at all. And the same thing actually in Moonraker, but we'll get to that. What about Tom? I loved... Roger Moore in this one. And I love the guy who played Calber, Max Calber. <laughs> Why is that funny? I think he's just a funny character. Excuse me, I have a phone call. <laughs> what of it? Favorite scene? Ooh. Mm. Well, I think the film is at its most fun in the Egyptian temples when Moore and Bach are chasing Kiel. So would that be the same favorite as for Henrik? I, I I am tempted to pick that one up because it is the most suspenseful scene for me. It's 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 kind of a tie on how, how you wanna take it. Do you want to answer the question in a way that treats the film seriously? Or do you kind of want to point out its failings? Because if you want the kind of this more serious take, in that case it would be Jaws and in the temple ruins, but if once again, if we would take the more mean route, it would be the moment when Shark eats the Strombergs, whatever the lady was to him. 
character off because it kind of showcases all the goofy shit that goes on in the film. But it's your favorite anyway. It's my favorite in the sense that, well, it is quite funny scene, but also because it, to me, it highlights all the major problems that I have with this film, which pretty much comes down into all the goofy stuff that happens here. It's called the James Bond stuff that is happening here. It's kind of a code ammunition for the entire Austin Powers franchise stuff. Well, Austin Powers was never really too good at what it was doing, in my opinion. But yeah. Well, I, 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 I think that it pretty much nailed James Bond in the head. They are so bad that I, I, I feel physically bad when I'm watching these movies. They are so bad. Really? I, I, I kind of watch them and I, I can see myself confusing them into some entries in the Bond franchise. Yeah, maybe, but the character is so like over the top to the max that it's that disgusting stuff that happens with the ladies. It's just poor jokes, kind of like toilet humor. Well, yeah, that it is. That it is. What's Tom's favorite scene? I really love the scene in the desert, you know, in the tent with the girls and the guy who I I forgot on his name, but I think he's a great character. Hossein. Hossein with the. Um, English aristocratic accent as well. Was it? Oh. Yeah. I was kind of smirking at the moment where they sit down and he's laughing like, James Bond, what a pleasant surprise. <laughs> My good old friend, welcome. <laughs> That's the goofy stuff in this film. And you don't really find those types of guys in the desert in real life. so Yeah. Favorite quote? Oh, tell him to pull out. Well, for me, it's the one exactly following that. Oh, James, I cannot find the words. Oh, let me try and enlarge your vocabulary. <laughs> well, to me, it's actually from the opening song of this film. Nobody does it better. Makes me feel sorry for the rest. Nobody does it half as good as you, baby. You are the best. <laughs> Which kind of, once again... <laughs> Highlights mm-hmm. extremely to me how self masturbatory this film is. Like e- even the opening song sings about how great the James Bond and the Bond franchise is. Yeah, why not? It's kind of a celebratory moment. Wasn't this the what fifteenth anniversary of the series? So, but yeah, but it's also a double meaning. Mm, that too. Baby, you're the best. Probably the lyrics that Harry Saltzman would not take kindly as well. Favorite kill? Well, certainly not strong. <laughs> yeah, certainly not. But I do enjoy when he dies and he's like eyeballing his own plate. <laughs> but I would say the Captain of Flippers, his dying words with zero stuttering are there to inform Bond that he is too late and there's four minutes left and then dies immediately. I liked the moment when Bond lets Sandor fall off the roof. Because that, that is the coldest and meanest kill in the film. At least from Bond's end. Yeah, it's still pretty cold for Roger Moore's Bond, but he kind of saves that moment with his quip. I, I don't know, to me it just highlighted the coldness in Bond. Like, you, you demand information by threatening a man with his life. And after you get the information, you simply kill him off with a hand wave, and then you go off and make funny jokey jokes about the whole incident. Well, guys, if you had the model super tanker of this film, 
would you modify it so that you could sleep in it? And if so, what would your super tanker swallow? <laughs> okay. Uh... Man, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Penis. <laughs> Very classy. Okay. <laughs> Henrik. <laughs> that, that's the English gentlemanish vibe coming from there. <laughs> this podcast just is getting better and better. Well, I suppose it would be collecting beautiful ladies from the beach. Because that would be the James Bond thing to do. And you can collect more and more. Roger more. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Henrik is really starting to get pissed off, I sense, so first image that comes to mind. Now now that Kari has pointed out out the frames, I I guess it appears to be that the moment when Bond is walking into the desert showing and there happens the clipping with that part of the audience which makes it look like a bunch of rotting corpses and something moving amongst them <laughs> oh that's a good one I'll go with the super tanker though whenever I think this film it's the super tanker Tom? Egypt Egypt in general okay and what's the shot that best exemplifies this film for you? I think the first shot of Atlantis hmm yeah, I, I, I'm with Tom here. To me, also Atlantis. Yeah, that's probably the better pick, but uh, I'll go with Super Tanker. Because gotta love that Super Tanker. What pulled you out? M. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think it kind of went on just a bit too long, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the Tanker War was too long, and kind of as often happens with these large scale films, it Kind of loses focus away from the main character, as I said. To follow these random nobodies for extended periods for unknown reasons. Also, it, yeah, it kind of happens when they re-enter the sub to exit Liparus. Also, the um, involvement of the US in the whole story I didn't like. Clearly, I think they weren't brave enough to just put the British and the Russians to the forefront of that fight, although I think the Russians are fighting there somewhere in the background, but you never really see them. And uh, for me, I guess it would be... Well, in the end, it's not Jaws. At least, not yet. What pulled you in? I suppose for you guys, it's the tell him to pull out joke, is what pulled you in. Actually, it would be the Siberia joke. Which is? (laughs) How it went? Uh, you keep a positive attitude. I got trained uh, to hard environments in Siberia. And Bon remarks, yeah, I've understood that most of your countrymen do. Or something in that sort. Don't remember the exact lines. Okay, interesting. Well, you know, the cinematography is by kind of high point here. Then the music... And you get the feeling that, that this film has a sense of direction pretty much all the way through. It feels like it's well pre-planned. Like most shots have a weight, have meaning, especially in the first half, but then we get to tanker and once again too long. Scissors of Sacrilege, what would you change in the film? Hmm. I would take some of the goofiness out of this one. Yeah, like, I would... So tone it down a bit. Not remove it completely, because 
This obviously is still supposed to be at least partly goofy action adventure spy thing, but just top it down a notch. Yeah, the sexism goofiness could have been removed completely, but it's the times and they didn't. The tanker war could be way shorter. Now it feels like it's kind of a 007 stage show off that they just can't stop at the right moment. I think they could have had a different Bond girl. She just didn't. She just didn't toot my horn, you know. Um, when it comes to the leading ladies of Roger Moore in these films, it seems like none of them really have good chemistry with Roger Moore. If you start with Live and Let Die, it doesn't work. Then you have Golden Gun. I guess well, that might might be the best bit of chemistry when Good Night is is there, even though she is a completely goofy character and totally sexism overload. Then you get this stronger character here, but they don't really have much chemistry in my view. Then you have Moonraker, where you definitely don't have chemistry with Good Night. Uh, I mean, Holly Goodhead. Jesus, <laughs> these names. For your eyes only, definitely zero chemistry with that girl with the bow. Octopus, you finally have some chemistry because Maud Adams is back and they do have chemistry. Then a view to a kill. That just that film just doesn't work too well. Stacy Sutton, she's too young. She's not much of a actor. So I guess Octopussy, Maud Adams is my favorite Roger Moore co-star out of the ladies. You really know you're watching The Spy Who Loved Me when you get told to pull out. <laughs> I, I I was supposed to say that when Bond is a smug asshole simply for the woman not letting him drive. Would you like me to drive? But now I'm also going to take Tom's remark here. Well, you really know you're watching this film when Jaws as a character is still somewhat menacing and not a complete clown like in the next one. Three adjectives to describe the film. Pretty slick and huge. Mm. I'll go with aquatic, easygoing and a bit dim with it. Cool. Fun. Uh, Brainless. Outpulling. Brainless. Uh, Brainless. Okay. Stealing accepted. Watch test. Did you look at your watch during the film? I did a few times. Uh, Yeah, I'm afraid that I did when the tanker war was going. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah. So on some level, it was a problem for everybody. So, would you recommend this film, The Spy Who Loved Me? Yes, I would. Kinda yes. It's not the best one for me, and it's not something that I would uh, that would be my first-hand recommendation for someone who hasn't seen po- any Bond films, and it wouldn't even be my first-hand recommendation to someone who wants to see a Roger Moore Bond film. That would be for your eyes only. Yup, I've I've heard that that film was better, but. I still didn't hate this one. If you have followed Bond movies, if you have seen more than a few Bond films, and if you have already seen For Your Eyes Only, I would give this one a recommendation. When it comes to For Your Eyes Only, I kind of like or understand what they're doing there. They're trying to make Bond more the Bond of the books, but it kind of fails because it doesn't play to Moore's strengths, unfortunately, and then it kind of yeah feels lackluster because of that. Because there should have been some other actor doing that James Bond film. But I like it as well. Yeah, I would recommend The Spy Who Loved Me. It's not without its problems, as I have stated. The fight on Lipperus goes too long. 
too many action scenes in general. The cinematography and locations are spot on. Music memorable. It's a funny film. Roger Moore is allowed to play Bond as he wishes, I guess. The sexism should stay somewhere else. But Bond without sexism is a is not a reality, I guess, in the 70s. Solid action film. Well, n- yeah, not, not even today. Sexism still is part of the character. I don't know about that. You're reading something else than me in Daniel Craig. But it's a solid action adventure with uh, the most 70s look from all the 70s Bond films, in my opinion. A feast for my eyes. I like it. I like it. It's good. It's good. It's good enough. Henrik, would you recommend closing the lab for the evening? I guess that is a game plan at this point. If you insist uh, so. Yes. Unless you insist on stretching out this episode's length for the umpteenth hour. No, never did. But I guess I have made you tired to death with this one. I, I, I believe that we have exhausted the topic of this film. I believe so as well. There's not many more things to say here, so it's time to close. <laughs> I hope our listeners have once again gotten the explosion of information that they so love. In fact, what was the comment that there has been so much information in this lab that... It's borderline obnoxious. Borderline obnoxious. <laughs> Noted. I can't take anymore. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's too bad because you are in for this shit for the how only God knows how many episodes still. Yep. Well, I can take more. I was just making a, a joke that's been said. I don't know, twenty five times or more, much yeah. more. <laughs> well, you know where to find us: Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and you can join our twenty films from twenty different countries in twenty nineteen. Please join it. Watch the films or watch any other 20 films from 20 different countries of your own choosing and at the end of the year in 2020 we will invite all the people to say a few words in the podcast about their experience so hopefully one of you or many of you will join and we as you have noticed we have this James Bond thing going on here so every last Thursday of the month you will get a James Bond episode like this one so next month see you for Moonraker, do, 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 do. he's the man with the Moonraker in the sky. <laughs> yeah, fucking nailing, nailing the theme songs there. <laughs> I guess I fly with my Raker some other day. Okay, let's go already. <laughs> to the next week when we will do what? It will be a film from North Korea, Hong Kil Jong. Hope to see you then. Yep. Goodbye. Shining off. Yep, goodbye, goodbye. Yeah, I'll be heading to get at least some bite. Yeah, you are heading for a quick bite. God damn it, I walked into that one, did it? <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, you're supposed to be, so tell me. Okay, it is. Are you ready for this? Yes. Yep. Hello. Still Hello? ready? Yeah, I've crashed. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> Guys.